0: Now, in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we have a very wonderful chapter here. We find first the Lord places a little child in the midst as an object lesson for the kingdom of heaven today, and then he pronounces the parable of the lost sheep, and he provides a new pattern for conduct in the church, and he proclaims a new proviso for forgiveness. You see, these chapters here, though they do not seem to further advance the movement that's in the gospel, but they do fill out many of the dark corners which have risen because of the sudden digression in the kingdom of heaven due to the rejection of the king. Now, Matthew 13 gave us an overall outline of the kingdom of heaven in this age in the Mystery Parable Discourse. But there are still questions to be answered. These chapters I find very helpful in answering many of the questions that arise. Now, we find that the new birth is made essential in entering the kingdom. And so let's begin there with verse 1 now. And I'm reading, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I wonder if you detect anything there of personal ambition, or is that just because I have a very critical mind that I see it there? Well, I feel that these men probably have been talking it over, and I suppose that maybe two or three of them would express themselves and probably get the impression that they might be the ones that could reasonably be considered as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And our Lord did a rather sensational thing here. Jesus called a little child unto him. And something that you may miss here is this, "...and set him in the midst of them." What does that tell you? It tells us that the little child, without hesitation, came to him. I think this is a very remarkable thing, The little ones came to him. Suffer the little ones to come unto me, and forbid them not. The problem was not in getting the little ones to come to him. The problem was to stop the older ones, the adults, from hindering the little ones to come to him. I think this is a very lovely thing that we have here. And so our Lord put him in the midst and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted... "...and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven." Now, that verse has certainly been abused and misunderstood. There are those that think that he's talking about reversion and not conversion. They think that it means you're to revert back to your childhood in some unusual fashion. Are you to become like a juvenile in your actions... And I am afraid that we've got a lot of the saints that act like spoiled children. And we've already seen our Lord talked about spoiled brats also. And there are a lot of the saints that think that's what it means. He's not talking about going back to a former childhood, but rather of going on to a new life. Here our Lord gives logic to the thinking of the disciples as he diverts their attention from the matter of holding an exalted place in the kingdom to that of primary importance namely of first being able to secure entrance into that kingdom and this is just as radical as what our lord said to nicodemus that night he said to him that which is born of the flesh it's flesh and that which born of the spirit is spirit and that Unless you're born again, why, you're not even going to be able to see the kingdom of God. So that the important thing here is the new birth. And that is what he's talking about here. You've got to become a little child in the sense that you've got to be born again. And when you're born again, you start out as a child spiritually. And so many today like to be very active be doing things. There are a lot of folks that like to give testimonies. You'd be surprised that over the years, the number of requests that I've had from so-called new converts that wanted to come and give their testimony. May I say to you, that is the same thing he's talking about here, that these men said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We'd like to get a Good slice of the kingdom. We'd like to be pretty prominent in it. This is a day that is overemphasized activity and methods and getting everybody involved, and I don't object to that, but we have too many chiefs today and too few Indians. This is the savers of that. Now, our Lord said that if you have been converted, why, think of your spiritual age. You're to become a little child. Now, should a little child get up and blabber out a testimony immediately? Should a little child be an officer in a church? Paul says not. And I think our Lord is saying something like that here. This is a very important section, as you can see. Now, he goes on to say this, verse 4 now of Matthew 18. "...whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven." Now, this is the thing that's important, is to go back to the entrance into the kingdom and not the position that is in the kingdom. And when you go back and emphasize the entrance, the new birth, then you'll find out that that one is the greatest in the kingdom." And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Now listen to him. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he was drowned in the depth of the sea. And friends, that's rather strong language, by the way. And what he's doing here in this entire section seems to me he makes the evangelization of children a divine imperative. He gives top priority to this type of ministry. And I commend anyone that's working with children today. There's nothing as important as that. Remember the stories told that Dwight L. Moody came home one night and his family asked him, How many converts did you have tonight? And he said, well, I had two converts and a half of a convert. And they said, oh, you had two adults and one child. Oh, no. No, he said, I had two children and one adult. The adult was an old man. He didn't have but a half of a life to give anyway. He's just half of a convert. The little one is the important one. We today just don't emphasize that. I guess they never did. A pastor of a Scottish church years ago turned in his resignation. And the elders asked him, well, why are you resigning? Well, he said, all year. I've just had one convert, and that was Wee Bobby (laughs) Moffat. Well, Wee Bobby Moffat was the man who actually opened Africa to missionary work. And that was the biggest year that preacher ever had. And I don't care whether he had a thousand other converts. You see, the little ones, our Lord is putting a great emphasis upon them here and grows out of this question that they ask him. Verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life halt or maim, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. I can't think of anything more harsh, friends, than this right here. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed. "...that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven." Now, there are two things I want you to see here that are all important today, and especially if you are a person who's lost a little one by death. Now, when it says here, "...their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven," this is one of the verses that the belief in a guardian angel has come in fact this is the primary verse many people believe that all of us have a guardian angel now we may have don't misunderstand me i don't know whether we do or not if i have one he hadn't caught up with me yet so i don't know too much about him but i personally I'm sure that this passage hasn't anything to do with guardian angels. The word for angels here is spirits. Now, what he's saying is this, that in heaven their spirits do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. What he's saying is this, don't you offend one of these little ones. Now, when one of these little ones dies, his spirit goes immediately to be with God. All little ones, they go to heaven, friends. And they go to heaven not because they're innocent or they happen to be your child, but they go to heaven because Jesus died for them. That's what he's talking about here. Don't you offend them. Don't you get in their way. Let them come to me. And he says, even if they die, their spirit's going to be right there in the presence of my Father. So many people wonder about their little ones. Well, David knew about his when the little one died. He said, no use mourning anymore. He's not coming to me. One of these days I'm going to him. That is a very precious truth. So many people that have lost little ones. I've lost a little one also. I have one buried up here in Altadena in Southern California. Every now and then to this good day, and that was years ago, I go by there and put a few flowers there. Just, you know, she's not there. She's with him. But I just go there because that's all i got left now. But someday, someday, some golden someday, I'm going to be there, and when I am, I'm going to see my little one. She's saved. I have two children, and I always hesitate to say that because I only have one living. And people begin to look around, and they think maybe something's happened to me that I don't know how to count or something. I have one in heaven, and one that's out in Pasadena. She's married. I must confess, I worried more about her than I ever have the little one in heaven. I know where she is. And someday I'll go to her. This is a glorious passage, friends. And he says, don't block their way. Have you ever stopped to think how important this is in this day when there's so many crimes against these little ones? Recently in Southern California, parents, that is, the mother and a stepfather, left a precious little girl along the freeway up here in the San Joaquin Valley. I was up there at the time. How shocking it was to read about it. There were cold nights there. They just wanted to get rid of the little one. May I say to you, I'll be honest with you, friends, (laughs) and you may not believe in a hell, but I want to say this. If there isn't a hell, there ought to be one for folks like that. And there is one. I believe there's one. He said it would be better that anything happened to you than cause these little ones to offend. This is a great passage for this day in which we live. Now he moves from that into this wonderful parable. Here he says, "...For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost." Now this is different from the parable in Luke 15 of the lost sheep. There, the lost sheep was lost and needed to be found. Actually here it's a little different. The emphasis here is upon saving the lost, not finding the lost save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine, which went not astray. Now we come here to a new pattern And notice how he closes this. Even so, it's not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, he'll take care of them until they get to the age of accountability. But parent, it's your responsibility until then. My, I'm afraid our school systems today are making guinea pigs out of the little ones. They're paying an awful price today in our schools. They've become nothing but guinea pigs in many cases through a great many crackpot leaders today that we have. May I say we have a tremendous responsibility before God here. Now he says in this section, he provides a new pattern for conduct in the church. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone if he shall bear thee, thou shalt have gained thy brother. Now, if he's trespass against you, you go to him. And if he'll not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now, this is order in the church. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican, now, there are those that like to smother things and cover them up today. That's not the way that he said to do it. You are to try to work it out in an amicable and a very peaceful manner and a quiet manner. But if the individual or the group won't let you work it out, then, my friend, you're to take it to the church. Now, he says, here again, verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We've had this before us at another time, and I pass over it. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, touching anything, somebody says, you mean if we agree down here, touching anything, That he'll hear us? Well, why don't you read all of it? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He'll hear them and touching anything that's in his name. And this is the simplest form here, actually, of church government, by the way. On the day of Pentecost, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in prayers. They were gathered together in his name. Now we have verse 21, this last section on forgiveness here. We have a real example in Simon Peter. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? This man, Simon Peter, he really thought that he was being magnanimous. Two or three times was the limit. According to the rabbis, but Simon Peter was willing to go seven times. But actually, Peter's generosity was parsimonious in comparison to the new estimation of Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus saith unto him, I say, not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. That's 490 times, I think. And by that time, May I say that things may be just pretty much worked out. If not, why, both of them have reached the old age to the extent won't amount to much anyway, will it? I think this is really, shall I say, go the limit. And that's exactly what our Lord is saying here. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. When he had begun to reckon one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, his wife and his children, all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. In other words, he said, I'd like to pay it back on installment plan. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. And I want to tell you, the amount was quite a sum, about $12 million. That's a lot to forgive anyone. And I think our Lord's using a ridiculous illustration. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And that's $17, over against $12 million. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest, his fellow-servant, fell down on his feet besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay thee. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay his debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then this Lord, after that, he called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? His lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now may I say that is a new principle, but that today is something that is not quite the basis for forgiveness for believers. Listen to him. "...and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you." Now, because he's forgiven us, we are to forgive. And we are to forgive the same way. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. This parable that he's concluded with of the king who forgave his servant, but the man in turn refused to forgive another... It illustrates the principle of forgiveness, you see. If God forgave our sins on the same way we forgive, none of us would ever get forgiven. This is a great principle after you become a child of God. Because you have been forgiven, and it's on that basis we're to forgive today. This is the principle of Christian conduct, of course. Now today, friends, our study brings us here to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And this, by the way, is a very, very important chapter. And these chapters, as you well know, are just chock full of very wonderful things that we are in right now. It's very difficult, actually, for me to finish a chapter in each broadcast because they are actually so rich and so meaningful. Now, here in chapter 19, very briefly, we are going to see the Lord Jesus entering Judea. We'll see him proclaiming God's standard for marriage and the only grounds for divorce given. Now, it may be right now you'd like to go to the telephone, call up some friend that you and this party have had maybe some discussion about divorce, and listen to the broadcast today. Then we'll see the Lord Jesus blessing little children. He meets a rich young ruler, and he points the apostles to their position in the coming kingdom. We're going to do our best to cover the chapter, but the chances are that we just might not do that today. Now, in this movement that we have here in Matthew, our attention now is directed to the geography of the gospel. Do you notice how the chapter opens? It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings... What sayings? Well, the ones that we've been considering back here in chapter 17. In fact, beginning of 16, 17, and 18. And now he's finished those, and he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. Now, have you noted the movement that we have actually in a physical and geographical sense. Now, he began up yonder in Caesarea Philippi, announced that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He moved down into Galilee, and he was in that area around Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. In fact, all around it, he crossed over to Gadara. And now, we find he leaves Galilee, and he came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. That means on the east bank of the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, I'd like to put together two words again to emphasize what we've emphasized again and again. One is multitudes, and the other is healed. Multitudes healed. Not just a few, but multitudes were healed. I'm more and more impressed by this. And I would say that if you're going to be a faith healer, brother, you ought to go to the hospitals and empty them. That's the thing that should be done. That's what our Lord did when He went by. I tell you, anyone wanting to be healed could be healed. Multitudes were healed. Now we come here in verse 3. These religious rulers come to Him and He restates God's ideal for marriage and grounds for divorce. Let me read. "...the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him." They were after him, you can see. "...and they are bringing now a problem that is just as difficult today as it was in that day, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause?" They come to him with this question that concerns divorce, and that's a real live question among Christians today. And let me background this just a little to say that God has given to all of mankind certain things for the welfare of mankind. For instance, he's given here marriage, and marriage is for the sake of the home that was his protection for the home and marriage is something that he's given to be a blessing to mankind whether they're saved or unsaved then he gave capital punishment actually for the protection of a nation to protect the lives of people in a nation and that was given and then he gave the sabbath law for the protection of the individual, that he might have one day arrest. So you have the individual, the family, and the nation. And these are just general laws that he gave. Later on, they were made specific for his people. The Sabbath was given to the nation Israel, for instance. And as far as capital punishment, I think it's for all nations under the sun, where you have a government. This should be in effect. And then you have for the home, marriage. Now, we have here this question that concerns marriage. It's in the smaller context of the nation Israel, of course. Then we see it as he gives it here in the light of the Christian today. Now, let's look at it that way. The Pharisees came with the question, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife For every cause, this is the question they come, and it was discussed in that day. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, what he actually did here, he took them right back to the very beginning. He took them back to God's ideal of marriage. Now, the Mosaic law had permitted divorce on a very broad basis. For instance, over in Deuteronomy 24.1, and let me read this. It's rather important. "...when a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it came to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he had found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, give it in her hand, and send her out of his house." You see, a divorce was not as bad before the Mosaic law as a marriage to a stranger. For instance, the priest's daughter, if she married a stranger, she was shut out from the nation Israel. But in the time the Mosaic law had actually been made meaningless because of the granting of the divorce on the flimsiest pretext, the burning of bread, for instance— And as a result, there was a great deal of discussion in our Lord's day. Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Now, this was God's ideal. He took them back to God's original intention before sin entered the human family. Now, divorce was not in God's original plan. And why? Because sin was not in God's original plan. Divorce is always the result of sin. And I don't care what you say, there's sin there somewhere that causes divorce. And our Lord now deals with this. And he took them back to that original plan of God. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And we've read that. That is part of it anyway. You ought to read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which deals with this entire question according to the Mosaic law. Now, why did Moses permit it? And this is something that's quite interesting He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses permitted it for a purpose. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. You see, marriage was given to mankind, and it's the tenderest and the sweetest of human relationships. There's nothing like it. The marriage was to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. Only believers, therefore, can set forth this high and holy relationship. Now, when they failed and bitterness and hardness of heart enter in, then that marriage becomes a hollow sham, and it's just a mockery of marriage. You see, marriage, friends, is either made in heaven or hell. There's no third place to make them. And when it's made in the wrong place, you're going to have trouble to begin with. And many Christians find that marriage becomes a very shaky proposition even for Christians today. And now our Lord is going to deal with this question. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, he permitted it. You see, God is merciful to us, and how merciful he is to us. But his ideal is never divorce. Now, I recognize today we're living in a culture that has been very lax here, and there are multitudes of people I'm talking to that have been divorced. Now, may I say to you that the background is always sin. But after all, we're all sinners— And God forgives murderers. He forgives people that have been divorced. I mean, it's actually, in that sense, no worse than any other sin. But I think we need to recognize what causes it. Will you listen to him now? In verse 9 here, he's going to give something new. "...and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication," and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now, adultery breaks the marriage relationship and provides, Will you notice this, the one ground for divorce. That is the one ground for divorce. Now, I know that in this age of divorce it is permitted actually on one basis scripturally, and that's adultery. Now, somebody says, yes, but here's this poor Christian woman married to this drunkard, or here's this man, and I knew a case like this, wonderful Christian man married to a godless woman. Now, what about it? Believers may separate on other grounds, and I think that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 7, but divorce is permitted on one basis only, and that's adultery. Again, Uh, I had a woman that came to me. She said, now, my husband is spending money. He's drinking and gambling and my two boys. And the only way I can protect them is to get a divorce to ensure their future. And she said, should I do it? If I don't, why, they'll have no opportunity in the future at all. Well, I said, on that ground, and you understand that you're doing it for this reason, and that as a Christian... You were separated from him already because he left you. But that's to stay that way. And somebody says, that's harsh, isn't it? Well, friends, I didn't make it. I'm telling you what's in the Scripture here. This is the thing that I'm sure is well-pleasing to God. Now, let me make this statement. Divorce was granted for the purpose of permitting the innocent party to remarry, you see. And this rule is applicable only... To believers, God's not regulating the lives of unbelievers here. He's holding them to the message of the cross first. God wants the unbeliever to come to Christ and not to discuss the question of divorce, whether it's scriptural or not. That fellow's lost, whether he's married, divorced, or single. makes no difference until he accepts Christ. The thing that is important to note, that for believers he puts down one grounds for divorce. Now, suppose here is a believer today that her husband got a divorce or the wife got a divorce on another grounds. What about this party? Well, if there's been adultery there, in most of these cases I find there is, then the innocent party is permitted to remarry. I believe that that's the whole thought that he has in this particular case. Now, let me move on, because there's something else here that's important. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. In other words, these disciples say, Well, it would be better if you stayed single. Well, you would avoid a lot of trouble. There's no question about that. Now, will you notice? He said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it's given. Now, will you notice, and this is so important, especially in this day, and I think that he puts down a great principle here in verse 12, that actually the Roman Catholic Church is right now wrestling with this problem. And I tell you, it's tearing it asunder, because I think that if they'd turn right here, they'd find a great principle that God's put down. Listen to this. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, there's some men, some women. They don't need to marry. They get along very well by themselves. What was it that that maiden lady said years ago? They asked her why she hadn't got married. And she says, I don't need to get married. says, I've got a stove that smokes. And I've got a dog that barks. And I've got a parrot that cusses. And she says, I just don't need a man around the place all." Well, may I say to you... That's all right. There are many people like that today, but that's not for everybody. He says, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of man. That is, they make a rule, regulation, say that you can't get married. And may I say, you have no right to do that, but if you do it, then they are eunuchs. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Frankly, I know a person went to the mission field. And when she went to the mission field, I talked to her. I said, look, your chances are nil of getting married out there. She's been out there for years. She didn't get married. She said, I thought that through. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. She made it. May I say to you, there's no rules about this today. Somebody says, you think that the preacher ought to get married or the priest should be married? May I say to you, this is a place where God puts down a principle. He says, that's up to the individual. You have to make that decision yourself. And some should marry, some should not marry. And my, there's so many facets to this that I wish we had time to go into. Now, I'm anxious to just get to this. Here's something wonderful. Then were there brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Suffer the little children. Forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've had this matter about the salvation of the children before us just a few days ago. But now, this is a very wonderful passage again about children that die in infancy. They're saved. He says, you let them come unto me. And it's a very interesting thing that no child will reject Jesus if he's presented to the child on a Bible basis. Did you know that that's true? That's one reason we ought to get the message to them. Now, somebody says, wait a minute. Then all could be saved if we could get them to them as children. Oh, no, because they reach the age of accountability later. And that's my reason for trying to get the gospel into the hearts of children, so that when they reach the age of accountability, they'll make a decision for Christ And that's important that that be followed through. Don't rest on the statement that your child made a decision when he was three, four, five, six, or seven years old. My daughter made a decision when she was seven, almost on her own, came in and told her mother one day when she was seven years old, she wanted to accept Jesus. Ever since then, I bet I've asked her a dozen times, have you really trusted the Lord Jesus? And one time she said to me, she says, well, Daddy, why do you keep asking me that? Just want to make sure. That's all. Just want to make sure, friends. The decision will be made, actually, at the age of accountability. You say to me, when is that age? I don't know. I don't know. And when they've heard the gospel, is that the age of accountability for them? I have no answer for that. I just know that it's important instead of standing on the street corner and arguing about getting gospel to our children, let's get it to them. And then try to follow through when they reach the age of accountability, that they turn to Christ. But wait just a minute. There's something else here. Isn't it interesting that our Lord, having given the word concerning divorce, immediately begins to talk about the children? Do you want to know the very thing that's all important in any divorce are the children? What about the children? As a woman came to me and she said, "'I don't love my husband anymore, "'what he's doing and all that sort of thing. "'I don't love him. "'And I've heard you say, Dr. McGee, "'when there's no love there, "'then there's no relationship, "'and I want to get a divorce.'" Well, may I say, "'There's no relationship there. "'I'll hold to that. "'And it's tragic when there's no love there.'" But that's not the basis for divorce, my friend. Will you listen to me carefully? I said to this woman, she said, "'I don't love my husband anymore.'" I said, but do you love your children? Well, she says, of course I do. What's that got to do with it? I said, that has everything to do with it. You're to stay with him as long as you can if you love those children. But I don't love him. That's not the point. Do you love them? Our Lord put this matter about suffer the little children to come unto me. And friends, that's the thing that ought to make any couple, and especially a Christian couple, to think not twice, but a dozen times before they go to the divorce court. The Lord Jesus said, Suffer them to come unto me. And you'd be surprised today the number of little ones that have been turned away from Christ because of the separation, the divorce of father and mother. They tell us that a large percentage, I saw this somewhere, and I couldn't confirm it, but I believe that it was 30 percent of these that are hippies today, have come out of broken homes. May I say that our Lord ties that together. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou will enter into life, Keep the commandments. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. This is a remarkable incident, and we'll have an occasion, of course, to consider it again in the Gospel of Luke. And I probably will spend more time with it there, but there's certain things here we'd like to call your attention. You'll notice how he approached the Lord Jesus. He called him good. Now, he was willing to concede that. And the Enemies, I don't think, would have gone that far. What our Lord is saying to the young man, why do you call me good? And then he says, there's none good but one, that is God. And I'm sure you see what our Lord was after. He's saying, young man, no one's good but God. Now, if you see that I'm good, it's because I'm God. That's the reason that the Lord Jesus does this. And so he's leading him along that he might accept him as the Christ, the Son of God. Then the Lord Jesus flashed on this young man the commandments that have to do with a man's relationship to man. And let me read those. Verse 18 now of Matthew 19. He said unto him, "...which Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness." "'Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself.' Now listen, this young man saith unto him, "'All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet?' Now he recognized that there was a lack in his life. Yet this young man could say that he had kept these commandments. Now the commandments our Lord gave to him are the last of the Ten Commandments, that have to do with a man's relationship to man. The first commandments have to do with a man's relationship to God. Our Lord did not use those, because he's leading this young man along. Now, the Lord says to him, verse 21, "...Jesus saith unto him, If thou wilt be perfect or complete, go and sell what thou hast. Give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven." "...and come and follow me." Following Jesus, of course, would have led him to see that he was not keeping the first commandments, which have to do with a man's relationship to God. This very moment, the Lord Jesus is on the way to the cross, and if he's going to follow the Lord Jesus, he'd find himself at the foot of a cross." But there was something standing in the way. For this young man, it was riches. The riches were the stumbling block for this young man. Now, for somebody else, it might be something else, and would be, certainly would for me. Riches is certainly not my problem, friends, because I don't have it. But will you notice what our Lord now says to this young man? But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had Great possessions. You see, this was the stumbling block in the young man's life. This was the thing that was keeping him from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, today you will find that there are many things that are keeping men from the Lord Jesus. Riches, one thing. Oh, there are just multitudes of other things. Actually, a church membership are keeping a lot of people from Christ. They think they belong to the church and That puts them in a little cellophane bag and nobody can get to them. After all, they can say, I'm a church member. I've been through the ceremonies. I made my confession and that sort of thing. But my friend, they are as unconverted as any Hottentot in the darkest spot on top side of the earth. That would be their condition. What is it today that is separating maybe you from Christ? Is anything in the way? that's keeping you from him. Well, it was riches for this young man. Now, will you notice, our Lord now, in verse 23, he says, "...then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven." Not many rich, you know, not many of the great ones of the earth. I think that's still true today. Notice what he said, "...again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God." Now, I feel that a great many people miss many times the humor that our Lord uses. And I'm confident that there's humor here. And I've even heard this rather ridiculous explanation that there was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle, and a camel had to kneel down to go through. And what our Lord meant, he'd have to become humble. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about a real camel, and he's talking about a real needle that has an eye in it. And friends, let me ask you the very frank question. Is it possible for a real camel to go through an eye of the needle? I think you know the answer. He just can't make it. It's impossible. But would it be possible for God to do that? Well, God can put a camel through a needle. so Only he's not in that business. But only God can regenerate a man. And that is the point he's making here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He'll never enter in because of his riches. There are so many people today that think they're going to be saved by what they have or who they are. And friends... You are saved when you find out who you are, and that is a sinner, and when you find out that you're a beggar in God's sight and you have nothing to offer Him for your salvation. Now, when you make that discovery, you're a candidate for salvation. But as long as you think that you can do something or you can pay God, and there are a lot of people that think they can do that. Why, you can no more be saved than I mean, you can put a camel through an eye of a needle, by your own works. You say, that's impossible. Of course it is. That's the point our Lord is making here. It's impossible. Now, let's read on. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Well, listen to this. This is the explanation. Verse 26 of Matthew 19. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, "...with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible." As far as any person is concerned, it doesn't make any difference who you are. You're a candidate for salvation if you recognize that you are not a candidate for salvation, that you have nothing to offer God at all. And when you come to Him to offer Him nothing except empty hands and to hold him out to Him in faith... My friend, he'll take you and save you. That's when he does that. Now, notice verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And it's so easy to believe that Simon Peter's betraying a very selfish streak here. Didn't the Lord Jesus rebuke him? Well, will you notice? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Our Lord did not rebuke Him. I believe that a Christian ought to work for a reward today. And Simon Peter said, Lord, we've made a tremendous sacrifice to follow you will we be rewarded. And our Lord said, You're going to sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that is a great principle he puts down. There is a reward for those who, having been saved, sacrifice for Jesus' sake. Many an unknown saint today, of whom the world has not heard, is going to be given first place in his presence someday. I believe that's going to be one of the most revealing things when we come into the presence of God to find out that all of these that receive a claim and are mentioned as Christian leaders, you won't even hear from them in that day. The ones you'll hear of are unknown saints of God. What a glorious, wonderful picture this presents to us. Now we come to chapter 20, and we have here again another remarkable chapter, but not as long. You have here the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and Jesus makes the 4th, and 5th announcements of his approaching death, and the mother of James and John requests the places on the right hand and left hand for his sons, and then Jesus opens the eyes of two blind men along the roadside. Now, this chapter opens here with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and it's actually a continuation of Jesus' remarks on rewards that were begun in the last chapter. This chapter will bring to an end, I think, the section that seems to mark time in the movement of Matthew. After this chapter, the tempo increases and he moves directly to the cross. This chapter makes an important contribution, however, to filling in some of those dark corners of the present state of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we will notice that we've had this up about rewards in the last chapter. Now, the principle... For giving rewards is stated in this parable. Faithfulness to the task and not the amount of work done or the spectacular nature of it governs the giving of rewards. And you have here this first parable. We want to look at that. Now, I'm reading chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 1. And it begins, "...for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man..." That's a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Now, this parable you see is closer related to the past chapter. The last verse of chapter 19, you notice, "...but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, if you drop down to verse 16 in this chapter, you'd find, "...so the last shall be first, and the first last..." For many be called, but few chosen. So you see at the beginning of this parable and at the end of it, while you have this verse as sort of a parenthesis to put around the chapter. Now, let me just read into this parable here. Now, this man, he has a vineyard, and he went out to hire some laborers to work in it. When he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the market place. And he said unto them, "'Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I'll give you.' And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and that's noon and in the afternoon. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said unto them, "'Why stand ye here all the day idle?' They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. Whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. When the first came, they supposed that they should have received more and they likewise received every man a penny. When they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, And go thy way, I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil? Because I'm good. Now, this is a tremendous parable, and it illustrates this, that it's not the amount of time that you serve or the prominence and importance of your position which determines your reward. It's your faithfulness to the task God's given you to perform, regardless of how small or how short or how very insignificant it might appear. I've always felt that the Lord someday will call up some dear little lady. She may have been a member of my church, and I'll turn to a member of the staff, and I'll say, do you know her? And they'll say, no, never heard of her. And another one will say, well, she certainly wasn't president of the choir. She never was president of the missionary society. She never taught a Sunday school class. Well, that woman never did anything. And look at the way that he's rewarding her. And we'll find out when he mentions the reason he's rewarding her. She was probably a widow. She had a little son. (laughs) And she was faithful, just bringing up that little boy. She never spoke to thousands like some evangelist or some preacher. She had one little boy. (laughs) That's all God asked her to do, to be faithful. And she was faithful. And that little fellow went as a missionary out to the field, served God out there. That's all God ever asked her to do. Somebody says, well, she sure didn't work as much as I did. No, that's right. But he's not going to warn you about the amount of work you've done. It's going to be how faithful you were whether you did the job he called you to do. Maybe it wasn't a big one, but have you been faithful in that task? This is a very wonderful parable, as you can see. Now, notice the movement in verse 17, and it's geographical and physical. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them. Now they're approaching Jerusalem. They're going up out of the Jordan Valley, moving up to Jerusalem where he is to die upon the cross. And will you listen to him now? Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priests and under the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, you can't spell it out any plainer than that. He's telling these men now for the fourth time in detail at this juncture exactly what's going to happen to him. And do you know that somehow or another it just didn't fit into their program? They couldn't quite see it took them a long time to get it. And it's now very clearly understood by anyone who reads this gospel that it's his avowed intention to go to Jerusalem to die. Now, you ponder the significance of this. He went there deliberately to die for you and me. That's something to turn over and think about. There are a great many people today in fact, liberalism has come to the place they want to get to the throne without going by the cross. And friends, there's no other way but the way of the cross leads home. That's the only way that you can get there. As a Boy, I've heard that sung under a brush arbor many times. There's no other way but the way of the cross leads home. And that was a profound truth that came out from under a brush arbor didn't come out of a scientific laboratory, did not come out of a college classroom, did not come out of the halls of state, did not come from some profound, outstanding individual, did not come from the military. But it's just a simple song that states a great truth. There's no other way but the way of the cross leads home. Now, in view of the fact he's going there to die, again he takes his disciples aside, tells them that he's going to die. And then the strange thing takes place. The mother of Zebedee's children, James and John, she comes and asks for the place, one on the right hand, one on the left. It seems to be something that is amazing that she'd do that at a time like this. The cross, even at this point, just does not fit into their program at all. They know and believe he's the Messiah and that he's moving to a throne. But they did not know it would go by a cross. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. I'm afraid a great many of us worship him like this. And he said unto her, "'What wilt thou?' She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. She's asking this for her sons. I don't know whether to criticize her or not. She's an ambitious mother. She certainly missed the very atmosphere and the very understanding of what was really taking place at that time. Now we find here that he says to her, And I'm going to leave out something that's not in our better manuscripts. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give but it shall be given to them for whom it's prepared of my Father. And please don't miss this. This is so important for Christians today. He's not saying that there isn't a place on his right hand and left hand that's going to go to somebody. What he's saying is this. He says, I will not arbitrarily give this to John and to James. I'll not just arbitrarily give this to anyone. This is for those who prepare themselves for the place. Salvation, heaven, is for the asking. You do nothing, nothing in order to be saved. But, my friend, your place, your position, your reward in heaven is determined by what you do down here. Don't forget that. That's very important. Christians have lost sight of it. He says, it's not mine to give. I will not arbitrarily give it. You'll prepare yourself for that. By the way, what kind of a place are you preparing yourself for? I have no ambition for the place to the right hand or to the left. I think I missed that one. But, friend, all of us ought to work for a place up there. But you don't work for heaven. That is by faith in Christ through his marvelous grace. Paul said he pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And the trouble of it is there are too few that are even trying to win anything. And we need to recognize salvation is a gift. But my friend, you'll have to get on the race course or a reward. We need to do that. We need to be engaged today in a very serious way. I heard the ridiculous story years ago of a fellow that went to a party, and he was the ugliest man in the community, and they were playing a game of seeing who could make the funniest face. So finally, they played it a little while, and they brought the prize and handed it to him, and he said, well, what would you give me this for? Well, he says... "'We've given you the prize for making the funniest faith.'" Well, he said, "'I wasn't even playing.'" Well, may I say to you, friends, you're going to have to be on the race course if you get a reward from him. You'll have to be playing to get any type of recognition. And this is perfectly legitimate. Our Lord made that very clear, and of course, Paul did. Now we find, as I come now to verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. And you know why they were moved with indignation? Because they wanted to place on the right hand and the left hand. Verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you... "...but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant." This is a new approach to service and greatness. And certainly, this is something that ought to be very clear in the minds of those who are engaged in Christian service. My friend, if you're going to sing for the Lord, please, when you're working for a prize, don't try to walk over all the other soloists. And then don't try to push every other minister aside if you're trying to be a minister of the gospel. And if you are in the church and are trying to become an officer in the church, don't do it at the expense of someone else. May I say to you, our Lord's made that clear. The way to be great And the way to serve for him is to go take the lowest place. Now, that'll come up in the Gospel of Luke in a parable, and we'll go into detail at that time. Now, for the fifth time, as they're now right under the shadow of the wall of Jerusalem, listen to him. Verse 28, "...even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." I trust you'll memorize that verse. Every Christian ought to know that. You ought to have that at your fingertip because you do not know when an opportunity might come up when you can talk to an individual and tell him why Jesus Christ came into the world, what his mission was, because there's confusion at that point. Now, at verse 29, "...and as they departed from Jericho..." A great multitude followed him. Now, they're going up from Jericho to Jerusalem, the opposite direction from the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And the Lord is going up from Jericho to Jerusalem to die with thieves. That's on the other side of the freeway, and that's a side you and I can never go. We only can come to him, for he died, in our room and in our stead. Some folk think that he never defended himself because at his trial. He did not. And they say that's the attitude of Christians. My friend, that's not. He defended himself. When he went to Jerusalem to die, he didn't defend himself because he took my place, and I'm guilty. Believe me, friends, there was no defense. That's the reason he didn't open his mouth. At that time, he is bearing my sin and by the way, he was bearing yours at that time. Now, as we move toward Jerusalem, verse thirteen: and behold two blind men, sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David." And I love these two fellows. I tell you, you couldn't keep them quite. "...and the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Thou Son of David." People get saved different ways. You don't have to go down an aisle. You don't have to make a great public display. You can be saved sitting in your car right now listening to the program. You could be saved in your home. Many people are saved like that. But that doesn't mean you can't be saved by making a display of it. These two fellows, I tell you, friends, they made a display of it. And they spoke to him accurately, as we've seen. The Syrophoenician woman at first, you know, called him son of David, but she had no claim. These fellows have got a claim on him, and they're exercising it. Jesus stood still and called them and said, "'What will ye that I shall do unto you?' They say unto him, "'Lord, that our eyes may be opened.'" It seems so obvious that was their problem. But you see, when you come to the Lord Jesus, you're going to have to tell him you're a sinner. And if you don't, friends, you won't get saved. I'm so tired today of meeting these little Jesus people that are running around so pious and they've never come to him as a sinner to be saved. My friend, you have to come on that basis. And that's the offense of the cross. Everybody'd like to come to the cross. They could bring a little of their perfume along and spray it around and talk about their goodness and their good deeds. But my friend, you and I haven't any goodness at all, none whatsoever to present to him. We come to him and you cannot sweeten human character with psychology, with all of the training that can be given today. You can educate the flesh, you can do everything, but that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Why, well, my friend, you can no more improve human flesh by that method than you could take a gallon of Chanel Number no. 5 and pour it on a pile of fertilizer out in the barnyard. You'll never sweeten it by doing it that way, my friend. And human nature is as bad. You have to come to him as a sinner and receive him as a Savior. These blind men, they say, we're blind, that's our problem, and They had to make that statement. So Jesus, this is the last verse of the chapter, had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. They certainly did. You know where he's going? He's on the way to the cross. Now chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem officially, cleanses the temple. Curses the fig tree. When he is challenged by the chief priests and elders, he condemns them by parables of the two sons and the householder whose servant slew his son. This is another great chapter. Why, we got 28 great chapters in Matthew. Now, will you look at this? When they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, "...under the Mount of Olives." And that's right there at the Mount of Olives. It's on the Mount of Olives. "...then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you. Straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he'll send them." Now, I see no point reading in a miracle here, and I've heard so much made of this. I think it's better to look at it in the normal, natural way in which it's given to us and that's just simply this. Our Lord, when he was in Jerusalem the last time, had told his friends there, I'm coming here, and probably had disclosed to them what he intended to do. And he asked, I'm sure, that they had furnished the little animal for him. They agreed to it, and they said, we'll have it ready. And I think it was to be agreed at the Passover feast. And they had it already tied. Oh, I think it's so much more wonderful that way. And he said, I'll send one of my disciples or a couple of them in to get the little animal. And when they come to get it, you better question them and make sure. And I'll tell them what to say. Now he tells them, If any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he'll send them." All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and this, of course, is in Zechariah 9, 9, "...tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a foal of an ass." The very interesting thing is that if you go back to Zechariah 9, 9, you're going to find that we don't have the total quotation here at all. Actually, Zechariah 9, 9, "...Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass." Now, there are certain important omissions in the quotation in Matthew, which a very careful comparison will reveal. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, is omitted. Why? He's not coming in now for this time of rejoicing. That'll take place at His second coming. Likewise, He is just and having salvation, and the word salvation is victory. That was not that the conclusion to be drawn is that these portions will be fulfilled at the second coming. And that will be the true triumphal entry. Now, this is in fulfillment of the part that is quoted here. Now, it is assumed that he was meek because he was riding upon this little animal. Friends, that's not true. That little animal was ridden by kings. That would be just like come riding in today in a Rolls Royce. The little animal, this little donkey, was the animal of peace, and kings rode upon it. And actually, by riding upon the little animal, he's offering himself as king. And in spite of the fact he's doing that, why the prophet says he's humble. That's important to see, and I think very important to see. Now, will you notice? And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, "'Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!' And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, that same multitude, just in a few days, will say, Crucify him. Now we have... Verse 12, "...and Jesus went into the temple of God, cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold ofs, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves." That's very strong language, is it not? Now, I'd like to call attention to something that's very important, To understand the so-called triumphal entry, I do not think that the triumphal entry is the proper name for it here, because we've seen only certain portions of Zechariah were fulfilled. He's coming into the city, and he's coming in in order that he might be the Savior. He's making the final presentation of himself a public presentation to the people, Now, I think that when you put all of the Gospels together, they present a composite picture of the so-called triumphal entry. I think you need to put the Gospel accounts together, and the conclusion, I think, is quite obvious that he didn't enter the city just one time, but three days, once a day on three separate days, he came into Jerusalem. Now, let me briefly sketch this. The first day came in was on Saturday. That was the Sabbath day. There were no money changers on that day. And you'll notice that Mark tells us that he looked around and left. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple when he looked round about upon all things. And now the eventide was come. He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. That's Mark eleven eleven. The first day. No money changes. He just went in and looked around. That day he entered as the priest of God. The second day was Sunday, the first day of the week. Matthew's the one records that here. The money changes were there, and he cleansed the temple. Now Matthew presents him how as a king. He entered as the king, according to Matthew. Then the third day he came in, and that's on Monday, the second day of the week. And that's the day he wept over Jerusalem and entered the temple and taught and healed. And Dr. Luke records that in Luke 19, 41, 44, and 47, 48. We'll see that when we get to it. He entered as prophet that day. He entered three times as the priest, as the king, as the prophet. And he retired each day to Bethany. Apparently, he did not spend a night in the city until he was arrested. Remember the so-called triumphal entry. It ended at the cross. He'll come the second time in triumph. And the writer to the Hebrews puts this together in a wonderful way. Hebrews nine twenty-eight: So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And when he comes the next time to this earth, We're told his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's where he touches down on this earth. Then he comes into the city. That'll be the triumphal entry at his second coming. This I cannot call a triumphal entry. He's on the way to the cross to die for your sin and my sin. And by his death and resurrection, salvation is to be offered unto him. Now, we're told the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. He healed them. You notice how Matthew emphasizes that. Multitudes were healed. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were so displeased. You see, the chief priests, they resented it. And they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, Thou hast perfected praise, and he left them. This is his rejection of the religious leaders. He left them, and he went out of the city under Bethany, and he lodged there. Now we find him the next day coming back into the city. And I think that this is the one that Dr. Luke will emphasize for us. We need to recognize, and I think when you put the gospel accounts together. He entered the city three times as prophet, priest, and king. This is his final offer of himself to his own nation. And now, after this, he's on the way to the cross. In verse 18 we read, "...now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, He came to it, and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now, there has been, of course, a difficulty here in attempting to interpret the fig tree. What does the fig tree represent? And I've heard all sorts of interpretations of this. However, I feel that the fig tree is symbolic of Israel. I think we'll find that again in the 24th chapter, and again in that chapter why there's been a great deal of disagreement as to just what the fig tree really means. Now, at least we can say with a great deal of confidence that when the Lord came into the world there was no fruit on the nation only the outward leaves of that ritual of a lifeless religion. They went through the form, but they denied the power thereof. And this is what he condemned. We're going to see in the remainder of this chapter and the one that's coming up that there's no mistaking that he condemned this very religious system that God had given because they had turned it to nothing in the world but a dead, lifeless Ritual. It had lost its vitality and its virility and was no longer accomplishing God's purpose. And I'm of the opinion God will deal the same way with the organized church that has turned its back upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, He cursed the fig tree. And again, I say that I feel this is symbolic. Certainly, He condemned the nation, and this nation was judged. Now, will you notice, as I read on here, verse 20, And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? This to them was quite an amazing thing. Then in verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, Ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Now, our Lord very definitely here, as you can see, gives them a lesson on prayer. And they marvel that this took place, that the fig tree was cursed. He tells them that their problem would be that they would not have faith that God could move in such a miraculous way. Now, I don't think that, frankly, our business is cursing fig trees or removing mountains, literal mountains. I live here in Southern California, and right along the foothill of the Madre Mountains, to me they're quite lovely. I've never grown tired of them. There's never been two days when they were alike, and I always enjoy looking at them. David said, "...shall I lift up mine eyes unto the hills?" Well, I think David meant that his help didn't come from there, and I've never looked up those mountains for help, but they are quite beautiful. But I've never wanted to move them. I feel like that there's something bigger than mountain moving, and there's something bigger than cursing fig trees, and that is to preach the gospel of Christ and to give out the Word of God and to have the Spirit of God use it. That, my friend, is a miracle. When these lips of clay can say something that the Spirit of God can take and transform lives, now that's the kind of faith I want. And I must confess that sometimes I wonder how in the world can the Lord use this radio program. psychology professor, that is a friend of mine, he said, did it ever occur to you that maybe the reason you read the letters is just to bolster up your lack of faith? Well, that could be. I wouldn't argue with the psychologists on that. All I'm saying is that what we need is faith to believe that God can and will use his word. But I believe that the fig tree represents Israel. Now, listen to these chief priests and to the religious authorities. Verse 23, I'm reading. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? The religious rulers, you see, are becoming ugly And very hateful in their manner they don't question what he's doing do you notice that and if there'd been any basis on which they could deny that he had done these things they say now we want to know on what authority you do it Jesus answered and said unto them I also will ask you one thing which if ye tell me I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things now here's his question to them The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of man? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he'll say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of man, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. You see, our Lord immediately, he put them on the horns of a dilemma. These religious rulers were attempting to put him on the horns of a dilemma. And he said, I'll tell you by what authority I do it. Not that they really wanted to know. They were trying to trap him. But he said, I'll tell you. But you'll have to tell me by what authority John the Baptist did is. Was it of heaven or of man? And, of course, if they had said of heaven, he'd said, well, I move by the same authority that John does. You can very well realize they would not receive what he would say concerning the basis of his authority. They wouldn't accept John's authority from heaven. They won't accept his either. They're trying to trap him. Now, notice, and they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you. By what authority I do these things. Now, you can see there's a tenseness that's developing here. This parable now that's coming up, and we need to have this before us. It's a scathing denunciation of the religious rulers, and it places the publicans and harlots above them, and they could not ignore this charge of Jesus. I tell you, he's really moving in upon them. Now, listen to this. But what think ye, my, this is tremendous. What think ye, a certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, "'Son, go work today in my vineyard.' He answered and said, "'I will not.' But afterward he repented and went. He came to the second and said, "'Likewise.' And he answered and said, "'I go, sir.' And he went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him, "'By the first. Jesus saith unto them, "'Verily I say unto you,' That the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, this is something that for them was terrible. He's putting the publicans, harlots, above them. And they are the other son. The son has said, I'll go, but he didn't go. I can make application of that for today very easily. We have a great many people that have joined the church. They're religious. <laughs> They think they're Christians, but they're not Christians. Friends, we're seeing a great many people listening to this program that are becoming Christians. They already were church members. And we're seeing so much of that in these days because many people are reaching out for reality today. And they want something that they can hold on to in dire, dark and desperate days. And we're in that period now. And if you are one of those, and all you have is a religion that is just outward, may I say to you that you can do all these things, join the church and say yes, yes, yes to everything, but that doesn't make you a Christian, you see. A Christian is one that's had a transformation take place in his life. Old things have passed away and all things have become new That's a child of God. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. That is the person we're talking about here, by the way. And the publicans and harlots, they knew they were sinners. They came in late. They wouldn't go at first. Now they come in, and he receives them. Listen to the Lord now as he speaks in verse 32. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. You see, they were just religious, that's all. Nothing had really happened on the inside. It was all exterior. Religion is the exterior decoration. The real thing is interior, and it really not only redecorates, it makes you new. Now, will you notice he gives them another parable. He's not through with them. For they could get out of earshot, he has another one for them. Verse 33 now. here another parable. "'There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, built a tower, led it out to husbandmen, went to a far country.'" When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman, and they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. And last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandman saw the son, They said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. This is the most pointed parable that he's given so far. And this really was one that would dig in upon them. And what he's saying here is this. It's the final warning to the nation Israel, to the religious rulers. Last of all, he sent unto them his son. Now, the son was right there giving them this parable. And they knew what he was talking about. He made it very clear. Well, now, what are they going to do with his son? He's telling them right now what's in their hearts, what they're planning to do to him. And they caught him. I'm reading verse 39. And cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. I tell you, this was something that was startling to these men. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He'll miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Now, this is really digging right down where these men live. He sends them back, you see to the Old Testament for the analogy of the stone to himself. And I'm reading now verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And I would like to call your attention to the fact that he's changed the expression from kingdom of heaven to kingdom of God here. And I think that he's using the larger word because what he's getting ready to do now is to include the Gentiles and anyone that will come to him. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof, and the church is that holy nation. Verse 44, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall will grind him to powder. The first part of that verse speaks of his first coming. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. If you come to him, he is the rock on which the church is built. No other foundation can any man lay. If you come and rest on him by faith, he'll save you. But if you don't, then you'll have to do with him at his second coming. Why, he is the stone that Daniel said cut out without hands, and it shall smite the image. And here our Lord says, grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. They knew what he was talking about. And today, unfortunately, great many don't seem to see that there's an application for themselves, especially those in the church. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet.